Greetings and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast from Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast deals with the intricacies of planning worship each week. I'm Diana Sanchez-Bouchong, Executive Director of Worship Resources and Director of Music Ministries. I'm Derek Weber, Director of Preaching Ministries. And I'm Lisa Hancock, Director of Worship Arts. Now, during this time of transition and experimentation with in-person, online, and hybrid worship, the worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that inspire worship teams and leaders to seize this moment and realize the opportunities before the church, finding ways to help those worshiping with us to re-engage and shape the church we are becoming. Today, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Lisa Hancock, the newly hired Director of Worship Arts at Discipleship Ministries. Dr. Hancock is a lifelong United Methodist whose passion for worship and the arts began when she joined Children's Choir at three and a half years old, eventually leading her to pursue an undergraduate and graduate degree in sacred music. While completing her Master of Sacred Music at Perkins School of Theology, Lisa discerned a call to develop a systematic theology through the lens of disability. In 2021, she earned a Ph.D. in Religious Studies from SMU. After defending her dissertation, Jesus Christ, Revelation of Love, a Christology of the Disabled Christ. Before joining the staff at Discipleship Ministries, Lisa's work included researching and writing sermon guides for the United Methodist Health Ministry Fund and co-authoring curriculum on disability theology and anti-ableism for the Julian Way, a ministry of education and empowerment with, for, and by persons of diverse embodiments that she co-founded with her spouse, Reverend Justin Hancock. Welcome, Lisa. We're just so delighted to have you as our guest today on your fourth day of work (laughs) at Discipleship Ministries. Um, Now, I've given a brief bio, but we'd love to know a little bit more about you and what you've been doing these last couple of years. So kind of fill us in on, on yourself and what you've been up to. Thank you so much for that question and for such an excellent um, introduction. I am excited to be here and also thinking about the last two years, I think like anybody else, that immediately throws me back to March 2020, right? When everything kind of shut down. And I think for me, that was a really critical time uh, as so many of us experienced I was suddenly at home with my husband and my, at the time, 17-month-old and trying to finish up a dissertation and also figure out what was happening in the world and how I was going to find my footing in the midst of that. So really, the last two years have been spent finishing up my dissertation while almost full-time being at home with, with with a growing toddler. And... Also, in the midst of that, finding my own rhythms 
of worship and prayer where we had been able to go to church suddenly we we actually found ourselves as as a family of not only doing online church but kind of sticking to some very um, set rhythms of morning prayer and evening prayer where we sang the Lord's Prayer uh, to the tune of The Wheels on the Bus because that was my, my son's favorite song at the time. And, and those rhythms, I think, sustained me through a lot of the questions that were out in the world, but also the big questions that I was dealing with while writing a dissertation and then finding my way after that. So in the midst of all of that, I had opportunities to start connecting with the United Methodist Health Ministry Fund and then working with my husband with the Julian Way. And in the midst of that, also piecing life together again as the world opened back up. So it is such a joy to be in this transition um, into discipleship ministries and yet as big of a transition as it is, I feel like I am already, I I have some training in transition from the last two years. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm excited about what it means to bring that knowledge and that wisdom into this position and into work with discipleship ministries. Lisa, uh, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have yet another musician on the team. (laughs) (laughs) But But we didn't necessarily bring you in because of your musical ability, although I'm sure it will permeate everything you do. (laughs) That's one thing I've noticed about musicians. They permeate. Anyway, we changed the title of your role a little bit from Director of Liturgical Resources to Director of Worship Arts. And I know we did that. You didn't do that. But how do you envision living into that shift Mm-hmm. Not that we're leaving liturgy behind, but but that it's inclusive of of other things. How 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 does that strike you as coming into this position? I'm actually incredibly energized by that shift because my approach to the liturgy is that it itself is an art. It is both a structure and an art. We get to join in a long millennia long tradition. And yet we get to add our embellishments. We get to add new structures as they fit us in our current context. And I think that's part of what art does. Art both responds to the context of what is happening and art also pushes forward and and brings forth new ideas. So for on the one hand, I think that the liturgy, it's approaching the liturgy itself as art can have some really generative um, opportunities for us. At the same time, I'm excited by that because I think it gives us an opportunity to think art more broadly than music. Obviously, I think music is incredibly important, but I also think that there are so many opportunities in our current world in both in-person, hybrid, and online worship to engage the other senses in art, to explore visual art, to explore even textural art as part of supporting the liturgy. I like to think of the liturgy as a tomato cage. It's that thing that holds us up as we're growing, just like a tomato plant often needs a cage to hold it up as it grows. And I think that we really have some opportunities by approaching this position and by approaching the whole of what we do as a worshiping body from the lens of kind of multi-sensory art 
we have a chance to really widen our tomato cage, to really give us some opportunities um, for growth that we might not have had or we might not have even thought to explore without thinking about liturgy and art more broadly. Mm-hmm. So so how how do you, with the tomato cage idea, which I love, by the way, I'm going to play with that for a while. <laughs> But with that idea, how do you respond to churches that say, well, we don't do liturgy, you know, because we've heard that from a number of congregations that, well, we don't do liturgy because they envision liturgy in a in a very strict mm-hmm. form that they don't fit into. So how do you define it for them so that they can say, oh, we do do liturgy? Absolutely. I think that I would want to invite them to consider what is the rhythm of the way that we gather? What are the things that we do every week when we are together? Is there a time of fellowship beforehand? And then there's music that guides you in. I think that's part of the liturgy. Mm. Is there a time of passing of the peace in the midst of worship? That's part of the liturgy. Do you have a a way of starting with greetings and welcome and announcements and then prayer and then scripture reading and then sermon? Even if those pieces change, looking at the pieces of what we do when we gather and thinking about them as liturgy, I think is actually a really, it's an excellent opportunity to think about the fact that the liturgy is about how we structure our rhythm of life together and how we're doing our public work, kind of that going back to the root of what, um, of, of what the word liturgy comes from. It's the way that we do the work of worship together. And so you may not have a scripted liturgy and that may not fit your community and that's okay. I think you still have an opportunity to really step back and examine what is the tomato cage mm-hmm. that is helping your worshiping community grow. And what is it, what are you leaning on when you need it the most? Because I think that's the other part of the liturgy is it's not just something that happens to structure us on Sunday mornings. It comes up again and again in life, whether it's scripted or not. There are aspects of what we do on Sunday mornings that will pop up again. And that's where we can we can stop and recognize, oh, the tomato cage is holding me up today. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. tomato cage is holding us up as a church today. I love that. That's a great um, um, visual in my brain as you're talking about that. That is really helpful. And um, yeah, I think we get caught up with that word liturgy and and think of it that it equates ritual. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, those old rituals that we have, sometimes people get stuck in that idea and it's supposed to be well how we embody worship Mm -hmm. right now today with our families and with our neighbor and so forth so yeah and and that word embodiment you know i i know you used it earlier in in the i used it earlier actually Mm -hmm. in the in your biography that i i gave so that leads me to ask you about the julian's way Mm -hmm. because i i think you you and your husband have started this movement that we need to know more about. And I'm hoping we can collaborate and, and offer more resources through Discipleship Ministries. Will you talk a little more, bit more about that? Absolutely. So the Julian Way is actually named after Julian of Norwich, who is a 14th century anchoress from Norwich, England. Actually, we don't even 
We're not even quite sure that her name is Julian. Her text is one of the very first published texts in English by a woman, and the text itself is about all that we know about her. But if that's all that we know about her, it is incredibly rich and can give us so much to think about. And so the Julian way actually takes kind of two tenets from the work of Julian of Norwich to ground itself. One of those is this idea that all of creation is God's good creation. When we look at the history of the way that people with disabilities have been treated in the church, yes, but in society as a whole, there's been kind of a an ongoing idea that people with disabilities are representative in their bodies of the ill effects of sin, whether that is personal sin, which even Jesus says that's not the case, or if it's the effects of kind of societal sin. But they, they become these embodiments of sin. And so one of the things that we want to keep emphasizing in the Julian way is that the good creation is the disabled body as much as it is the able body or that we like to say the non-disabled body as much as it is the trees and the sky and the sun all of it is a good creation and that is a starting point for us the other thing that julian explores in her text which is called revelation of divine love or showings depending on which edition you're looking at. She explores this idea that we encounter and receive salvation in the meeting place with Christ's wounded and resurrected body. She has this image in there where she talks about all of God's people being drawn into the wound in Christ's side as a home. Like she talks about that, there's a homing that happens there where we find community and home in God, in in the wounded side. And so for us in the Julian way, we take that and we use that as a way of talking about diverse embodiments and empowerment because if we receive salvation through a wounded and resurrected Savior, then not only are disabled bodies part of God's good creation, but disabled bodies are also empowered to be leaders and movers and actors in the world and in the church itself. Yeah, that makes me think of that book, uh, The Wounded Healer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in that same light. And so, so help us out or help me out here. You know, the word disability was used for a long time Mm -hmm. and then it, and then it became a word you don't use. Uh, You say differently abled. And now, so where are we with what? what is the, the loving and compassionate way to talk about this? Right. That is an excellent question. And I will tell you, you could go on any number of forums and Twitter threads, and you're going to find a lot of different ideas about this in the disability community. And so the first thing that I always say is when we are actually meeting and being neighbors with people with disabilities, we call it what they want us to call it. Like my husband, who is a wheelchair user, like people like to say like, what do you want us to call whatever this is that you are? And he's like, well, my name is Justin. So you can start by calling me Justin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there is that reality first, that there's this, this personal nature to being disabled. And everybody who has a disability is going to probably have a slightly different way that they want to talk about their body. And that may shift over time. 
when we're talking kind of more broadly about the disability community, about people who have a variety of chronic illnesses, injuries, developmental conditions, we actually are back in a time when the word disability is acceptable and important in that it is kind of the term that we have that encompasses all of these varieties of bodies out in the world without being patronizing. So part of the pushback that has happened in the disability community is the idea that like differently abled is actually more distancing than disability is because it it creates more distance between people who are not disabled and people who are. But the other aspect of that and and where my, my husband kind of leans is towards the use of what he terms diverse embodiments because it encourages us to explore the ways that all kinds of bodies and all kinds of bodies that are on the spectrum of embodiment um, are diverse. And so when we work together, we can do more together and we can do more good together. So I think that diverse embodiments can be a really helpful term. The other thing that I would say about the word disability is one of the things that has been done is a a move towards thinking about not disability enabled, but disability and non-disability or disabled and non-disabled because non-disabled keeps um, disability still at the center of what we're talking about. And it's also acknowledging this reality that all of us as we age are more likely to become disabled. So it, it kind of encourages us to think more with the fluidity of our bodies instead of kind of assuming that an able body is the best kind of body or the most the best way to be embodied I guess thank you so much that was really helpful but but in part what I hear you saying is is the terminology while important is secondary to connection and it's about how do we enhance our relationships, our our ability to talk with, Mm -hmm. as opposed to about or at people who who may be different from us in in some way. Uh, So it's it's really about relationship, but we're trying to figure out how best to create relationships and how to honor the other person with whom Mm -hmm. we're in relationship. Does that make sense? I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's also, it's kind of what are you putting around the word disability? right? Are you putting love around disability? Are you putting understanding? Are you putting even liberatory, freeing words around it when you preach the gospel or or when you act out your faith in connection with the disability community? I think the words, the the words kind of become helpful or unhelpful Mm -hmm. when they are surrounded with other words and actions that are either helpful or unhelpful. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we use words to keep people at a distance as opposed to drawing them in. And so, so how do we draw in? How do we draw closer? Well, and I love, I love the idea that, yes, as we age and we're all aging, that we do lose some of our abilities and become more disabled. And, and as we do that, it, it's an opportunity to draw closer to Christ as you were talking about, it's in the wounds of Christ that we find our salvation. So I had never put those things together, but I'm going to be thinking about that and meditating more on that in the future. 
Can let me come back for a moment to the art idea and how how we express ourselves. One of the pushbacks I've often heard from congregations is art, or at least good art, is expensive. You know, and so how do we how do we as a small congregation how do we have good art? How do we express ourselves in in ways that are transformative and enlightening and and aid us in our worship. What what do you envision in, in terms of helping congregations get over this idea that it's beyond us or, or we can't do that, you know? So I am going to do what you said that I would probably do, which is I'm gonna bring music back in, oh, but no. I promise it's going to get us there. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, yes. So, so I, uh, okay. Trust me on this. I am an organist by training. And one of my professors in my graduate work was my organ teacher for a while. And we were talking in an organ lesson one time about how I was feeling a lot of tension about how to be a worship leader, how to be present in worship and also be a performer. Mm. I was being taught all these skills to perform, and yet I had really kind of internalized a message over time that performance isn't worship. And he looked at me and he goes, Lisa, performance is only not worship when it is less than your best, when it is mm. second and third tier to what your best is. When you are being bringing your best and your excellence for that day, that performance is worship. And so I think that is a mindset that I want to really build into any resourcing and consulting that we do with congregations. Your best is worship. Mm -hmm. So if your best is going outside in the prairie fields and bringing prairie grasses in because that somehow connects you to the exiled Israelites and you can draw that in, then you have created art that is both contextual and it is your best for that day. So I, that is what I want to bring to that. And I want that to be encouraging who you are, where you are, is exactly where God is with you. And so when we bring our very best, we are we are worshiping God. And that does not have to be what a church with a much larger budget brings. Their best may look different, but that does not mean it is a better best, if that makes sense. That is a better excellence than what your excellence is in your place in this time. Be the best tomato you can in your place. Yes. In your cage. <laughs> in your cage. Thank you, Derek. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's also talk into you in in your discussion about the past two years. You talked about the online stuff and the rhythms that you had at home and all of that. So, how do we bridge that that divide between what happens in person and what happens online? Or mm -hmm. uh, how do we maintain that? A lot of churches are talking about hybrid worship and we've got both things going on. How do we, how do, we do that? How do we express ourselves in those two very different media? Mm. The more I think about this, the more I think, for me, it starts with recognizing that whether church is happening for you in person or it's happening on a screen, you are an embodied person in that space. 
And so one of the ways that I really want to explore resourcing congregations for in-person, online, and hybrid worship is to really think about ways that we can return our people to their bodies. Because I think that there is perhaps from this very long season where everything was online and there was no hybridity to it, there could be a sense of the congregation is the audience and they are receptors of worship instead of participants in worship. Mm -hmm. And so I really want to think through how we can encourage hybrid worship that connects congregations that are sitting in the pew and congregations that are sitting at home on the couch to their bodies and then to their shared embodiment and community with others. I do think that this is a place where our tomato cage is going to shift a little bit. (laughs) We are going to have to explore what is useful and what is not in an in-person and an online worship and make compromises for the sake of both, to connect both communities. At the same time, I think there are actually some really exciting opportunities to think about liturgy that is online, that is, how do I put this, liturgy online that happens outside of Sunday, that actually engages Mm -hmm. everybody, but makes us a community online that may then come back in person on Sunday mornings and may not. And that those are some of the rhythms that we're exploring. So I I wish I could say that I had a crystal ball that told me we were going to figure this out the right way the first time and and we're going to get this. I think that this is a place where we're all on this journey together. And I'm excited to see how we can bend our tomato cages a little bit and maybe pull (laughs) from the past and imagine with the future Mm -hmm. and bring those together and see where it takes us. One of the things that comes to my mind, too, is that this is a time to refocus our understanding that neither the congregation in the church or the one online is the audience. Mm -hmm. The audience is God. Mm -hmm. And we got to remember that. And I, and I, I think... As worship leaders, many times we don't take the opportunity to teach that, to teach, you know, what Kierkegaard had said about who is the, who are the actors and who is the audience. And so ultimately our worship is for God. So we're not the, we shouldn't be the ones expecting to be the receivers all the time, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But, and then finding ways to help the, on, the people online to be contributors, mm-hmm. not just watchers. Mm-hmm not just an audience. I think that's that's where we turn that tomato cage sideways somehow. Yep. Okay, enough talk about <laughs> tomatoes. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to tell us right now, Lisa, um, as we're wrapping up about the what you were thinking in terms of your, I know it's early on, <laughs> day four, but your hopes and dreams of where this is leading? I will tell you that One of my biggest hopes and dreams is to really get a chance to connect across the connection, to do cross-cultural liturgical work that helps us, how do I want to put this? I think 
When I think about the communion of saints, let me draw back and pull from the Bible for a second. When I think about the communion of saints, I think about not only the saints who have gone before, but the saints that are here with us, that we are encountering on a daily basis. And the beautiful thing about the United Methodist Church is we understand ourselves as a connection. We are a connection of saints. We are communion of saints. And One of the things that I'm excited to do is to really explore the ways that we can strengthen our connections by actually knowing more about who we're connected to and really getting to not not resist globalization, but embrace the globalization of our society as an opportunity to not co-opt but to receive and explore and make part of our own liturgical structures, those worship structures, those arts, those prayers that are that are happening already around the world that we may not be aware of. So I'm very excited about that. And I'm I'm actually incredibly excited to keep exploring these notions of embodiment and the ways that we honor and value bodies in relationship to the liturgy as it connects to work that I've already done with the disability community. Again, we're so excited to have you here and uh, looking forward to uh, great collaborative work together in providing resources for the United Methodist Church and seeing where God leads us in these next couple of years, you know, and yeah, where we're going. (laughs) So I'd like to go ahead and wrap us up for today. I want to thank all of you who are joining us today. We hope this has been helpful to you. Remember that you can find more information at our website, umcdiscipleship.org. We want you to tell us what you think, so send us an email. We want to be in, in conversation with all of you. So until next time, we will be praying for and with you and your congregation. May God continue to bless your worship ministry as you make disciples for the transformation of the world. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.